What a great prayer and a safe place to be in the hands of Christ our King. Last week, we had a chance to celebrate our resurrected King, and I asked you, is the question, is this craziness, the good news of Christ, that, that, that Jesus left the Father's side, took on flesh, and, and ministered in the midst of people without sin, and, and went to the cross on your behalf and mine, died and rose again in victory? Is that craziness? Is it crazy that we gather like we have? We were in Acts 26, and we'll be in 27 today, and you can turn there and be ready. But the question was, was presented, why is it thought incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? See, the resurrection is so significant because it provides hope. The resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promise, and the resurrection calls us to repentance. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the crazy part. I also shared with you the irony that King Agrippa and Bernice were welcomed into to that courtroom scene with such great acclaim while Paul was brought in in chains, but we know that it was ultimately Paul who was remembered. And this tour of Acts just shows us how powerfully Paul was used. We have today and next Sunday left in Acts, and we will be done. That's hard to believe. We've, continue, we've been working our way through this wonderful book. Today we'll see how important it is to have our hope firmly placed in the Lord and to remember that no situation is out of his control. God has a plan and the power to carry that plan out. And the proper response is faith. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to remember that all our hope is found in Christ. And Lord, we worship you for you are holy, you are mighty. Lord, as we've had a chance to remember the resurrection and celebrate, we're just here extra grateful and humble that you would love us like this, that while we were still sinners, that Christ would die for us. Father, we thank you for our East Campus. We ask your blessing upon them today and their worship service and the service to follow this. We commit it to you and we ask that you would work in a mighty way in our hearts and in our lives today. May your spirit have his way. Father, would you help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear and to respond accordingly. And Father, may it all be for your glory and for your honor. And in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I think as Christians, if you've studied the life of Paul, even if you've been with us in this tour of Acts, it, there can be a, a sense of idealizing Paul's life and ministry. I mean, how powerful, how amazing. But I think we forget that it came at a very, very high price to him. He wrote in his second letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 11, verse 24, he wrote these things. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I would ask us at this point, are we still envious, right? Which of these circumstances might, might have caused us to say, you know what, I'm out. That's enough. The second ship, shipwreck was just was too much for me, or, the, or just that first flogging. That's too much. I can't do it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yes, God used Paul in remarkable ways, but it wasn't without great hardship and cost to him personally. And I, I think we can want ministry su success, but do we want the hardships? Do we want to go through the tough things? The account we will cover today really reads like a bad dream or, or a nightmare for many of us. And no doubt the idea of being in a ship that is being tossed by the sea for days does not sound appealing. Look with me now at our text starting in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And it was decided that we should sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the Adramedian, which was about to sail for, to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Then, the next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. The centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sindis. I can never say that. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Uh, many travel details uh, going on here from Caesarea to Fairhaven. And, and you can note on a map just that travel across there, the many places that, that, are, that were passed by. And you see the line there kind of going from the, the right of the screen toward the left and ultimately ending up where we'll, we'll wrap it up today. And we've got this list of these individuals involved. We've got Julius the Centurion who treats Paul well and obviously trusted him enough and gave him leave to go and see his friends. And, and many of these were unnamed friends in Sidon. Notice Luke puts the we in there again as he says, we put to sea. And it's likely that Luke stayed by his side for the next two years. Uh, later, Paul would write to uh, Timothy in his second letter, chapter 4, verse 11, 
Luke alone is with me. And then he goes on to say, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Now there's a change. Remember the sharp disagreement over Mark before. But this was written during that second imprisonment in Rome before his execution. So we've got likely some other friends there as well. Again, according to chapter 20, remember we had Sopater the Berean, the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. We have Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Aristarchus is mentioned by name here, a convert from Judaism, a fellow prisoner imprisoned for the gospel. We know that according to Acts 19 and, and chapter 20 and then 27 here, and also in Colossians 4 and Philemon. Luke tells us that they boarded a, a large Egyptian grain ship, a typically 140 feet long and 36 feet wide. We'll see here in the text four times in which Paul gives a speech. Look with us at first here at uh, chapter 27, verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, that would have been Yom Kippur, was already over. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. I want to note a few things as we go through this. First of all, God often gives his wisdom to his people. And Paul extends a warning here that, that's a wise one. They, if they continue this journey, there will be injury, there would be loss. Paul had an audience with the centurion, and I think that's noteworthy, but his counsel is not heeded. We understand that, that Julius is going to listen to the captain or the pilot of the ship over Paul, but their impatience to move on is dangerous. And, and it really, there's a, a few reasons why they probably didn't want to, to harbor there for the winter. It had to do with the way that the winds blew. It would have been very hard on the ship. And also may have had to do with the fact that they didn't want to stay in this small little city for the winter. But their impatience was dangerous. Some years ago, my son Peter and I were in, an, in another city and we had gone to a, a basketball game that night that he was playing in. And as the, as the game ended, an alarm went off in the building and there was an announcement, a tornado has been sighted, you know, 10 miles to the south and is heading toward us or something like that. So they started to usher us out into the hallways and they started to file us down in this hallways of the school. I didn't have it. I wanted nothing to do with that. I said, we're leaving. He says, what? I said, we're leaving. And we ran out and got in the truck and began to drive home because I'm impatient. It had been a long day. But I remember as we started going a little further, all of a sudden all visibility is lost and winds are blowing everywhere and we parked the truck in a safe spot and then we got to a point where we couldn't see anything and there was just wind and rain and the truck was blowing. I'm thinking, I may have made a bad decision in my impatience. <laughs> I lived through it. That's the good news. Here they're taking a, a calculated risk against Paul's counsel, wanting a better location. Clearly, the centurion and the pilot and the ship's owner felt the risk was worth taking. 
Look with me now at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchors and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground in Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is no mild storm out on the sea. And we get great detail of it here as this northeaster, this, this hurricane-like storm. And they're at the mercy of it. And they're so fearful that, that this is going to be disastrous that they begin to reinforce the boat, and, and, and they're, they're pulling in the, the lifeboat, the boat that they would use to, to make it to shore because the ship was too large to go too close, dumping valuable cargo. And I think verse 20 makes things clear here. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. What a helpless feeling, right? Uh, beyond their ability to control, all hope was lost. Have you ever been there? Have you been in that point where, where something, the pressures of life, maybe, maybe it's school or work, or maybe you've been through a, a financial season where the, the business is, is going under. You're going to lose the house and there's this sense of there's no hope or, or maybe the marriage is collapsing or you watch your parents' marriage fall apart. A health crisis comes and you feel so completely helpless. Now, what's your attitude like in that moment and, and how do you handle it? If you're on this boat with Paul... Are you complaining at any point? At any point, are you unhappy with this little cruise you went on? Your elders and pastors are reading through a book called Lead by Paul David Tripp. And he writes these words. Grumbling about horizontal difficulty is at once a complaint against the one who lords over those difficulties. And here's what's deadly about this. A life of quiet or not-so-quiet complaints hammers away at your confidence in the wisdom and goodness and faithfulness of God. It causes you to rest less comfortably in His care. Why? Well, because you tend not to seek out and rely on someone whom you no longer trust. It is simply hard to willingly and joyfully serve the master you don't trust in the way you once did, no matter what your formal theology tells you about his wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness. What are we like in those situations when the days of suffering come? 
suffering through a horrible trial, a horrible storm. It's a test of one's resolve in God, right? A resolve of your hope for him. We will soon read that there were 276 people on board, a point of complete desperation. When all hope is lost, can you imagine? No doubt they heard and felt the the wooden vessel creaking and straining under the pressure of the storm and the waves. They're fearful, they're hopeless. And no doubt they're having those, uh, this must be how it ends for me kind of moments in in their own thinking, right? Lost at sea, friends and family will never even know. God, are you there? God, why are you absent? Look at verse 21. Since they had been out without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, here's his second speech, man, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And God gives wisdom to his people, but he offers hope to his people as well. Paul's message starts with that, I told you so. But I think the purpose of that was, you didn't listen to me before, so now maybe you'll listen, right? I was right before. But now he's saying, listen, take heart. Be encouraged. How many times in your life have you needed someone to say that to you? In those moments of hopelessness, in those moments where the stress is so high, or your, things are, your, your anxiety is taking over, and you need someone to say, take heart, God is on the throne. It will be okay. The storm of life that you are in, in those moments of hopelessness, take heart. Paul offers words of encouragement. They're so beautiful for them if they're willing to believe. The words are, listen, no loss of life. By the way, how often are God's people a blessing to the people around them? Only the ship will be lost. An angel of the God whom I belong to and whom I worship and serve. What an honor for him to be able to say that. This angel of the Lord has spoken to me, saying, you'll arrive. It's okay. And by the way, everybody with you will as well. He's saying, listen, relax. I trust my God. He will not fail us. Encouragement that they will be delivered. Look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run 
On the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship, uh, ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion, here's his third speech, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Incredible uh, detail of the storm's peril and all that they're going through. The 14th night. Can you imagine that? Two weeks. But Paul gives his second warning. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. He's listened to by at least the soldiers now. And the sailors respond by cutting away the boat. They're now listening to Paul. There's some audience for him there. Look at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, and here's his fourth speech, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to, to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a, hair of your, uh, not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all, they, were, they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. You see, God gives wisdom to his people. He gives hope to his people. But God's people then are to proclaim that hope to others. Paul's wise counsel encourages them and, and renews their spirits, renews their, their bodies with food. Luke's words here suggest that no one had been eating because of the severity of this storm. No doubt many of them had, had, were unable to keep anything down at all. Imagine they sleep had been escaping them as well. They were probably just out of their minds on some level. But Paul's words are heated again. He's encouraging the crew, but sharing his hope in the Lord. He has the confidence and courage to say that God will keep his promise. And those who listened to Paul were saved from this danger. I can't help but think about the gospel when we're talking about this. We who have been blessed with an understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he did and what we celebrated last week, we have the good news and we share that. And we must. Because there's a world out there that's hopeless who needs to know that there is hope in Jesus Christ. That's why it's essential that we who know the gospel must share it. The words of life, the words of eternal life, the words of salvation. And people have to know that, that there's condemnation because of sin and there's eternal consequences that go with that. And that we're hopeless without Jesus Christ. You see, God's people proclaim his hope to others. Look with me at verse 37. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. 
So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the mainsail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran, a, they ran the vessel aground. The bow st- stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It's interesting a book written by a man named Robert Cornick talked about Paul shipwrecked. And reading the details just in this text, he began to do research and it led him to find lead anchors that were likely from that ship. He studied the weather and the terrain. It was just wonderful, enjoyable to read, just to think about. But what we read here is that everyone reaches the shore safely thanks to the centurion's desire to save You see, for Roman soldiers, if they lost their prisoners, they then would receive the penalty for the sin of that prisoner. So they didn't want to risk it. You can understand why. But what an amazing thing that the centurion had come to appreciate Paul so much that he was willing to risk that. And ultimately leads to this revelation that was given to Paul being proved true. Now, we started today by reviewing Paul's list of hardships and trials. And I want you to understand that a wrong way to look at this passage is that, that Jesus calms all the storms in our life. If we pray during the storm, he, he just fixes them all for us. Or, or, to, or to think that the, the, those of us who have more or greater faith will be delivered from trials and a lack of any delivery from a trial means, is an evidence of a lesser faith. We can't let ourselves think those things. Because if we think about this here, Paul's faith in the Lord was clearly strong. And yet, many days... In a storm. And think about the list of all the hardships that we read that Paul had experienced. You can't mix those two thoughts together and go, okay, just if you have enough faith, you're not going to have trials. You can't do it. You can't support it with Scripture. We can safely assume that Paul had been praying for days, saying, saying, Lord, please bring an end to this. There's no way he enjoyed this. This is a brutal time. Now, purely speculative. I, I can't read through this account without thinking of Matthew 14. Because the, the, the thought of this just caused me to wonder if Paul isn't doing his very, very best to stay out on the deck of the boat. With his arm maybe anchored around something that was solid. And why would I think of that? I think it's because of the account that we find in Matthew 14. 
Remember, the, the disciples are in a boat being rocked by high seas and headwinds. It's a, it's a bad situation to the point where they're scared. And what happens that night? Jesus comes walking out on the water, doesn't he? Remember their response? Fear. In the middle of this storm, is seeing this man walking out on the water. And they acknowledge it's Jesus. And then what does Peter do? He says, can I come to you, right? That wonderful story. And Jesus walks to him, but then he begins to doubt and begins to sink, remember? And ultimately, Jesus brings him back into the boat. And what happens? The waters become calm. Did this angel of the Lord in his declaration of safety cause Paul to look even more for the one who controls both heaven and earth? Can't you just imagine Paul out there praying, okay, Lord, I've heard of where you are during storms. Where are you? Let me see you. And in the storm, doing his best to anchor himself to this boat, trying to look, trying to see through all the rain and the wind and the darkness or whatever it is, and looking for his Savior. Because he knows how he operates. I know that my speculative thoughts and ideas are just that. But at least adds, it causes us to ask the question, Am I looking for the Lord in every situation of my life? Are my eyes on the horizon looking for God and how he works and how he's going to use a situation that may seem so hopeless? Or are you hidden down in the boat somewhere trying to stay dry, complaining that God would allow such circumstances to come your way. Maybe you started out full of prayer, but now you're just weary of praying. I keep praying this, but where are you, Lord? And maybe doubt is starting to set in. If you remember, Paul had been physically described as a man of small stature with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel. I add to that envisioning him with very pruny skin as well. A fun thought, but what's significant here in this? A further look at Matthew 14 tells us in verse 22, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. That account in in Matthew 14, Jesus put him into the situation. Jesus sent him out into the storm, his own disciples. What does that tell us? There was purpose to the storm. 
but they were in his care. There was purpose to the storm, but they were in his care. Child of God, take courage. You have a God who cares. You have a heavenly Father who sees. Alan Redpath heard his wife say, Girls, go get your father for breakfast. The oldest bounded up the steps, and by the time the youngest, who was considerably younger, made it to the room puffing from the race, her big sister said, I have already told Daddy breakfast is ready, and besides, I have all of Daddy. The little one took that pronouncement hard, and a tear began to run down her cheek. So her father sat her on his knee. She put her head on his shoulders, then smiled big and said to her sister, you might have all of Daddy, but Daddy has all of me. Paul was his father's possession. And that truth so permeated his inner being that he described God as the God to whom I belong. 